Hello and welcome back to A Reason for Hope. I am your host, Mario Costabile, and I'm super psyched to be with you today and have you listening in. A Ray of Hope is involved in many forms of media, such as films, music, and events. But the A Reason for Hope podcast is a little different for us. It's a deeper dive into our faith and our Catholic Church. Today, we're going to be talking about our conscience. What is it? How is it formed? Well, what is our conscience anyway? More than just a gut instinct, our conscience is a moral muscle. By informing us of our values and principles, it becomes the standard we use to judge whether or not our actions are ethical. Huh, what did I just say? Our conscience is our moral muscle. It's something we exercise, but the million dollar question is, how do we form our conscience? Because if it's not properly formed, we are just kind of doing what we want right? It's not our conscience, really, if we're just fulfilling our desires first and foremost. Well, we're going to go deep into this subject today. What conscience is and isn't, and how to form it. Our guest today is Dr. Matthew Levering, and he's going to share with you his insights and his knowledge with us today. This is going to be deep. This is going to be very informative. So welcome to A Reason for Hope. And here we go. So Dave, how you doing? So good to be back here with you. It's awesome to be here. Excellent. Thank you. Everything going well? Yeah, pretty good. Thanks. Great, great. Um, I wanted to share with you, uh, since we've been back with our podcast, season three, there's a lot of really cool stuff that's going on here at Array of Hope. Uh, our social media is blowing up. We actually officially became part of the TikTok. Am I saying it yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. I always say TikTok. My kids make fun of me. <laughs> but we're on TikTok now, which is really great. Alanis is really spearheading that uh, initiative. Uh, we have a lot of really cool music that is on the verge of being released that I'm super excited about. Uh, Rise Up Live is yeah. back awesome. with our new season. Uh, we're going to be introducing some of the older programs that we uh, launched in our first season, such as uh, Deeper Cuts, which is really cool. And uh, our topic today, as a matter of fact, is about conscience. And our new segment on Rise Up Live uh, is called uh, Pet Peeves, more more specifically, Dave's pet peeves. <laughs> so uh, just to uh, give our listeners and viewers a little bit of a heads up, it's not so much like ranting in about what you dislike about the church or our culture, <laughs> no, no, but no. it's a really clever way that would kind of reveal some of the things that people should know about uh, that we aren't aware of in right. a way. And one is on conscience. So I thought it'd be kind of cool to kind of... Um, play an excerpt from it that's going to appear on our Rise Up Live show here on our podcast. What do you think? I think that's great. Awesome. Let's do it. Roll it, Jack. Hello there. I'm Dr. David Heiduck, and welcome to Dave's Pet Peeves, where I get to talk about things that really weigh heavy on me. Today, I'm going to talk about this little piece of advice that's really very bad advice when someone has to make a moral choice. They're often told even by the church's pastors, just follow your conscience. First, in people's minds, this is nothing more than that silly Star Wars Jedi advice to trust your feelings. 
Anyone who gives 30 seconds of thought to how their feelings have misled them many times in the past can see just how ludicrous this guidance is. Feelings are not infallible, not to mention that feelings change and what's right or wrong doesn't. And then you have the issue that feelings are subjective, but moral truth isn't. There's no my truth and your truth. What if these truths are in direct contradiction? They can't both be right. And then add in the pesky fact of our sin condition, that we are inclined to sin and selfishness, lust and laziness. And you will see that often our feelings stem from our own disordered desires, desires that require grace and self-control to moderate and purify. A second point, while it is true that the Catholic Church states that a man has a right to act in conscience and cannot be forced to act contrary to it, this does not mean that you can in conscience disobey the Ten Commandments or the Word of God as expressed in sacred scripture or sacred tradition or the official teaching of the Church. No one has a right to have sex outside of marriage, use contraception, or get an abortion, or euthanize a sick parent, or murder anyone for that matter, or lie, or cheat, or steal in good conscience. <laughs> that was fun. You did a great job. Thanks. That was kind of cool. Um, so our guest today is Dr. Levering. I mean, this guy's like off the charts, as you know, brilliant. Yes. Uh, and I had a great time, you know, interviewing him and, and spending time with him. So a couple of things I want to share with you, and maybe you can answer some questions. So conscience is not really about subjectivism or relativism or emotionalism, right? No. Well, this is a good point because oftentimes people identify conscience with some sort of like inner feeling they have. Like, you know, I feel this is the right thing to do. So I think that, unfortunately, many people have a misunderstanding of conscience as like either a feeling or going with your heart, sometimes people talk about, or um, a sense that somehow God will tell me something unique that I should be doing in this circumstance. Mm. And I think that's a... Um, that's a wrong understanding of conscience. Got, gotcha. And conscience does not apply to what has been divinely revealed as truth, right? Such as scripture or tradition right. or constant teaching in the church. Right. So like this is an important thing like because people think, oh, well, my conscience told me this is okay or my heart says this is fine. Right. Well, if that contradicts like God's revelation, divine revelation, well, then I'm sorry. That's not conscience telling you, if the conscience is supposed to be really the voice of Christ speaking in the depths of our being, well, Christ is not going to contradict himself. So, so you can't have Christ revealing something in the scripture or God revealing something in his commandments and then telling you, oh, but it doesn't apply to you. <laughs> like, you know, just, it doesn't yeah, happen. Yeah. So conscience has to be properly formed and informed, which means we really need to know the teachings of the church and scripture, right? Yes, we do. <laughs> you know, and, and, Why are you laughing? You know, because it's, it's funny. So, so people like, act on their heart, but they know nothing about what they're talking about. Right. So it's like, my conscience told me this. Well, it's like, what, did God give you special knowledge that he, like, he appeared to you uh -huh. and like start teaching you? And so you don't need to look at the catechism or read the scriptures. So it's, it's really an interesting thing that people people uh, say when the fact of the matter is they don't really know what the church teaches. And more than that, they, they need to understand what the church teaches and why it teaches it, right? Mm. And even then, if they don't know how they feel about it or if they're not sure what they think about it, that doesn't, that's not conscience. Yeah. Them grappling with it intellectually 
does not give them license to act as they please. Or if they come up with different ideas, they can say, well, I don't, you know, I don't agree with the church on this, so I'm going to live this way. I'm sorry. That's yeah. not conscience telling you to do that. Yeah. That's not how it works. So I think that that's really key, that we need to inform our conscience. So this is another one, and uh, this is a big one. This is a, a big one that I get regarding pushback. So let's say, you know, your conscience doesn't excuse you if you find a priest that agrees with your position. Oh, my goodness, yes. I mean— Yeah, well, this is the thing. Not every priest, first of all, really knows the teaching of the church and what it teaches. Mm. Some have been themselves not formed well, Which depending is, on yeah. the seminary that they went to. Um, some are, are trying to make people's lives not seem so burdened. And so almost out of a misguided mercy, I think, try not to give people bad news. Right. Yeah, yeah. Right? So I'm trying to excuse the priests, whoever. And some just disagree with the church's teaching, even though they're a priest and supposed to be promoting it. Right. And think nothing of advising people in a contrary way to the church's teaching, mm. which is just downright wrong. So this is important. You can find the priest who's going to tell you what you want to hear. Conscience is about the truth. It's not about right. what you want to hear. It's, it's, it's not about doing research that substantiates what your conclusion already is in your head. Mm -hmm. Do you see? Yeah. And even with regards to this, you know, that particular priest cannot offset the church's constant tradition or the consistent teaching of the magisterium. 2,000 years. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. In, in that case, that priest is not a credible yeah. um, source for your conscience formation. Yeah. And if you have a doubtful conscience, right, um, you, you just can't act on it. I mean, you really need to have some moral clarity. Right, exactly. So yeah. if you're not sure, yeah, then you can't. You can't do it. You can't yeah. do it. And that just makes sense, I think, if you think about it. it. It makes perfect sense that if you're not sure if something's okay, then you don't do it. I mean, use a silly example. You know, like you're driving in the car and it's it's kind of dark at night and there's some like there's some light and it casts shadows and light shadows and it's a little weird. You know, sometimes night vision's tough when you're driving in the car, especially if you have glasses or whatnot. Mm -hmm. And there's something in the road up ahead and you can see it's kind of something, but it could be a shadow, but it could be a person, it could be a dog. And so what do you do? You, you step on the gas. No, that's not what you do. Right. You know, what you do is you proceed until you're sure it's not a dog, it's not a person, it's just a shadow. And then you right. go forward. Right. Well, I mean, if you makes use sense. that as an example, it just yeah. makes perfect sense why you can't act on a doubtful conscience. Because we're talking about right and wrong. We're talking about the law of God. We're talking about what it is God expects from you. Yeah. And and it's only in doing God's will that we're going to find the fullness of life and the fulfillment that we desire. And that the best circumstance is going to be brought about for everybody. Yeah. So, well, Dave, this has been really fun and offered a lot of clarity, and it's been very informative. I, mean, I truly can't wait for those pet peeves. They're going to be a lot of fun. And yeah, I, I, I kind of like it. It's sort of a little uncensored. but Ah, uh, Dave uncensored. Yeah, that's Interesting. a scary thing. Just uh, laying it out there. Just laying it out there. Awesome. All right, All right Dave. Great hanging with you, man. All right, peace. Peace. What's going on? It's Alanis with Who's That Saint, where I give you guys three clues on one saint for you to guess before the big reveal. Who's that saint? 
Clue number one. So the saint was actually born in 55 BC, so there's not much known about her, but we do know that she was born into a very wealthy family and gave a large portion of their possessions to the poor and kept very little for themselves. Who's that saint? Clue number two, this saint loved to pray and think about God from a very early age. It's actually believed that other mothers told their kids to imitate her because she was such a lovely example to their children. Who is that saint? Clue number three, on her mother's deathbed, she told the saint that she was a chosen vessel and should pray for a holy spouse. And so she prayed fervently to God for a husband who will help her live according to the divine law. And in that very same moment, another bachelor was praying for the Lord's help to find him a wife. And so an archangel appeared to each of them to announce that the Lord willed for the two of them to get married. Who is that saint? If you guys guessed St. Anne, then you are correct. St. Anne is the grandmother of Jesus. Her feast day is actually shared with her husband, Joe Kim, on July 26th. And as grandmother of Christ and mother of Mary, St. Anne soon became the patron of married women and for childless couples serving as a special aid in obtaining children. St. Anne, pray for us. Hi everyone, Jack Garno here from the Array of Hope Music Division. Welcome back to the Music Corner. Today we're talking about conscience, what it is and how we can form it, and what a blessing it is to have Dr. Matthew Levering featured on this episode. Stay tuned because Mario Costabile's interview with him is coming up. Speaking of conscience, this brings to mind a song that our band wrote this past summer called Restless. As you may be led to believe, The song is inspired by St. Augustine's famous quote, Our hearts are restless, O Lord, until they rest in Thee. This reminds me of the many times in my life when my heart was restless. And this restlessness would usually arise because I wasn't obeying my conscience. Over time, God has patiently revealed to me, through Christ and His Church, that the key to peace and a restful heart is surrender. Surrender to God which is synonymous to trusting God. And this is what I think St. Augustine is getting at when he counsels us to rest our hearts in God. If we obey God's law, surrendering to his will through following the dictates of conscience, we will find rest for our restless hearts. Surrender is simple, but I think that's also why it's so difficult. We're often blinded by the complexity of worldly things. It is only when we accept that God himself is the answer to the infinite longing of our hearts that we can find peace. Enjoy this preview of our new song, Restless. Matthew Levering holds the James N. and Mary D. Perry Jr. Chair of Theology at the University of St. Mary of the Lake Mundelein Seminary. He is the author or co-author of over 30 books, including such works as The Abuse of Conscience, Biblical Natural Law, multiple books on Vatican II, and Aquinas' Eschatological Ethics and the Virtue of Temperance. Let's welcome Dr. Matthew Levering. 
Dr. Matthew Levering, how are you today? I'm doing well. How, how are you? I'm, as you can tell, I'm very excited. It's, it's so great to, to see you. Uh, I've heard so many great things about you, and, and uh, uh, I need a lot of catch-up. I, I understand you've written some amazing, prolific books, which I want to talk to you about today. Uh, but before we really get into the interview and, and, and sharing the faith and really getting to know uh, you a little bit more uh, regarding your work, I want to know about you personally. So tell me a little bit about your background. Uh, what were you like as a kid? Uh, are you a cradle Catholic? Are you a convert? Tell me a little bit about yourself. Okay, so I'm a I'm a convert um, with my wife in in 1995, and so we both we graduated college. We got married in college, uh, graduated in 1993, and then in Easter 1995 we um, entered the church. Now my background is Quaker. Wow, and that means um means without without Bible, without um, without creed. And my, my mom, though, had been um, born as a Southern Baptist. And so she, during my childhood, was gradually coming back to faith in God and then faith in Jesus. So certainly by my, my teenage years, that was beginning to um, pick up. And then by the time I went to college, um, she was uh, becoming much more serious about that faith in Jesus. So I got to credit my mom. And then my, my grandpa, who, who, as a Quaker, he didn't believe in God, but what he did believe in was um, a way of life that did not conform to this world. And so he practiced that. He, he lived a way of life that was tremendously um, you know, sacrificial. And I, I admire that. So I, got, I give credit to those people, those wow. wonderful people. So you you were you were a Quaker up until what'd you say nineteen ninety five did you say? That's right. Wow, it, it must have been really dramatic. And 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 uh, what what lured you? What what compelled you to you know seek Catholicism? And and what made you realize that Catholicism you know Catholicism was the one true faith? Well, it was actually pretty easy. Now now Quakerism around college campuses. I grew up in a. Um, family of professors. And so Quakerism around college campuses, you have silent worship, but there would be, um, since there's no God and, and no Jesus, it really would just be like the front page of the New York Times. People would speak out of the silence and they would speak about political issues. And I became, I always had some physical problems and some surgeries as a child. And so I became um, uh, more and more and then certainly by the time of my, by the college years, I, I undertook a search uh, for whether there was any meaning whatsoever, any, any God. And if there was no God, then there would be no meaning. So I had, I had three days where um, my wife was in graduate school at Duke um, Public Policy Institute. And I had three days where I was um, trying to write novels, but I went, I experienced, um, uh, profound atheism. And uh, so during those three days, I realized that there was, um, if this was what it was, there was no meaning whatsoever, that the world was a complete shell, and that everything was headed to eternal annihilation. And so then I thought, well, golly, that's a, that's a terrible thing. Um, mm. And so I thought I better run to Duke Divinity School Library, which really helped me out 
and especially because at that time, Duke Divinity School Library um, had all the books from the little books from Ignatius Press. Um, they were buying them, so they were on the new book shelf. But I've always been a tremendously fast reader. That's been my, that's a skill that I have. And so then I could read. Um, I read hundreds of books. Wow. Um, you know, within within about six months, and then I I quickly saw that I had to become a Catholic. And so then it was just a matter of um, uh, working, of uh, helping my wife see that she ought to become a Catholic, and we could become a Catholic together. And so and so we did. So um, it sounds like uh, your intellect uh, stimulated you and pushed you into Catholicism. Was there a moment uh, in your life, or that you can reflect and share upon, when uh, you know the the person of Christ actually pierced your heart? Well, there, um, I've had about three or four such moments. I would say um, one of them was at my baptism. You know, because I never been baptized. Oh, beautiful. That's awesome. Now, it's difficult for me to differentiate the um, the Holy Spirit from Christ. Um, certainly, there was a moment um, which was. Cr- I feel sure Christ, but this was when I was having a, a life-saving surgery mm. in Annecy, France, um, when I was a sophomore in college. And so I'd, I'd pierced an artery and I didn't know that I had, but I was sort of, I was walking around the, ma- the Alps. This was when I was like 20, 20. Wow. And so uh, I was walking around, and then um, I had this incredible experience of peace. Once I once I learned the diagnosis, incredible experience of peace. But it's it's un, I can't even explain it. You know, it was certainly Christ's presence, and I knew it was, but I didn't know how to process that. In fact, I read the I read the Gospel of Matthew at that very time, but I couldn't understand it. It seemed foreign to me. I, I didn't under, I didn't know any context for it. And it seemed far, and I could not penetrate it at that time. And, and it's interesting that you, when you met your wife, that the two of you took the the deep dive into Catholicism, right? So both of you were uh, baptized and and went through RCIA at the same time. Now, now my wife, though, she was a grew up uh, um, a Presbyterian, um, somewhat nominal in her own faith, okay. not, not living particularly. Okay, but she. Um, you know, we met in high school and got married in college. So we, we married um, in college. And at first, um, she just told me she'd try out the Catholic faith. Now, you know, we had to we had to throw away the birth control. <laughs> you know, we had to do certain things. But she told me she would try it, you know, and then she liked it. Awesome. I mean, that, that really was for her. Um, she was open to it because coming from a Protestant background, it felt to her you know, her as as though like her parents had her mom had grown up Baptist, her father grown up Lutheran, and they became Presbyterian. You see, so it didn't seem that different from that. Now, now her faith has grown much much more over the years, of course. Mm-hmm. But um, that was what at the time I think was going on. So when your wife was in grad school, you were absorbing all these books on theology and then uh, actually became a theologian. So what uh, was it something that you anticipated? I mean, obviously, you know, when you grow up, people saying, I'm going to be a football player, I'm going to be a chemist, or I'm going to be a, you know, an attorney. You don't grow up and say, I'm going to be a theologian. So there must have been some sort of break, right? When you were absorbing all this stuff, you must have been inspired that, you know, maybe this is what I'll do for a living. What was that like? Well, for me, everything's existential coming out of 
coming out of my own, um, you know, heart, I guess. And mm-hmm. you got to remember, I, I, I was a Quaker. And so far from reading any theology, I didn't know theology existed until, wow. until I was 23 years old. So now in college, however, I did read Christian novelists and I studied, um, studied the Christianity of the, of the um, antebellum South. Hmm. So, I, I mean, the thing is, you got to understand that I've always been a super nerd. And so I knew right from the get-go that I was made to be a professor. Okay. I'm a professor's son and, okay. my, and my father, three of his sisters are professors or that's two sisters and then an uncle. But the main point is that it's a, it's a, it's kind of an academic family. And so I knew I was made to be a professor. I just didn't know what, what I was made to study. I couldn't, I couldn't figure that out. And anyway, it all came clear when I realized that I had to come to know this God who I had encountered, but who I had realized I, I desperately needed and could not find through literature. I couldn't mm-hmm. find through fiction. I had to know I had to know the real God, and I had to know Him in a real way. So for me, um, theology had never been a career. You know, it's an existential search. It's a search for Jesus Christ, a search for God, and a search um, to prepare um, myself and to help others um, as we journey um, toward God um, in a and, and seek eternal life. Mm. Hey, if you're enjoying this interview, be sure to check out the full video version on the Array of Hope channel. Subscribe for free at watch.arrayofhope.net. Then download the app by searching Array of Hope on your mobile device, Apple TV, or Roku. So is that what you see your role as a theologian? Is that uh, what a theologian does, is just uh, develop the intellect for others to make them understand? Tell me what your role is as a, as a theologian, what theologians should be doing. Yeah, yeah, that's what I see. I see my role as helping others um, get to eternal life, in, mm. in part, and, and come to know Jesus. In part, um, though, my particular role is going to involve... Um, quite a bit of overcoming impediments. For example, there are certain impediments that people find um, to faith. And especially, um, I'm, I'm speaking to, to people who want to read my books, and my books are written for graduate students, um, that kind of thing. So I'm, I'm speaking to people who um, have these intellectual concerns, um, whether they express them or not. Mm. You know, and so... I am addressing those concerns and and then, you know, seeking to share the faith and seeking to, seeking to spread the faith in a very deep way. Awesome. Awesome. So I know that you've written a lot of books, and uh, one of them is on the Second Vatican Council. Uh, there's been some talk about how there's a big problem in the church, especially in the United States, on how uh, there is a failure to accept, you know, the, the I guess the 
the writings of the Second Vatican Council too. And 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 I uh, grew up in myself in the seventies uh, when this started happening. And I, and I, I got to tell you, I mean, people that grew up prior to Vatican II must have been wondering like, what is happening? I mean, everything is changing. I mean, we're receiving the Eucharist, you know, in our hands, and and now we go from Latin to English, and 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 the music has changed. It used to be orchestral and organ. Now it's like, you know, John Denver sing along with a guitar kind of a thing. They really took liberties. I know that you've written about the hermeneutic of continuity. Uh, where does this phrase come from, and, and why is it so important? Well, let me answer the question, you know, in kind of two ways. Well, the first thing is that in my book, um, which is called, I've written a few, I've edited a couple books on Vatican II, but the book that I wrote on Vatican II is called, um, you know, An Introduction to Vatican II as an Ongoing Theological Event. And the reason I titled that was because after Vatican II, but even during the council, you know, the, the lead up to Vatican II had been the battle between the race or small movement, or they're also called the Nobel Theologie. And these are people like Henri de Labat and, and Yves Congar. Any, anyway, that's been the, that was the lead up and their battle between, between them and the so-called Thomas or Neo-Scholastics. But, but um, the thing was though, the, the Neo-Scholastics were essentially crushed by 1962. So in truth, there were, um, the Neo-Scholastics really kind of ended as a movement um, and now they've been revived since that time, but, but it, they ended as a movement. So what happened was the race or small movement split in half. That, that's what happened. And so I treat this in my book. This is the focus of my book. I, I show the goals, like in the first part of each chapter, I'll show the goals of Henri de Bac or the goals of Yves Congar or I'll show the goals of Louis Boyer uh, and, and those type of figures. Then I'll, I'll treat the Vatican II, I'll treat the document. Um, and then in the second, in the final conclusion then, and here's the key part, I will show what happened after the council where, where you have this tremendous divide between people who were allies, but now, um, now you have racial small figures and, and you have neo-modernists or just simply religious liberals. And the religious liberals want to um, to tear down the Catholic faith, and they have a number of um, strategies to do so. And so that's what that's where you get the a lot of the implementation comes out of this battle, this struggle. And so and so the, and also, if you read 1970s theology, you'll find this in spades. Hmm. So early 1970s, like anything. And so the, one of the funny things is that if you look at this. Um, Joseph Ratzinger, Anzer Zambalazar, Henri de Lebac, um, Etienne Gilson, Jacques Maritain, um, Louis Bouillet, and, and a number of others all published books between 1967 and maybe 66 and 1973, where they're, where they're basically saying the church is in utter crisis. We're dealing with a neo-modernist crisis. Ratzinger at that time calls it neo-modernist crisis. He says the modernist crisis has risen again. And so he was right, of course. <laughs> and so that's that's what you're talking about when you experience, um, when you think of Vatican II, you start thinking of that. But the actual documents of Vatican II are not that. The documents of Vatican II, although, of course, with any documents, including St. Augustine, St. Saint, Saint Thomas Aquinas, and anybody, with any, with, any, with any text, you can interpret them, some aspects of them in different ways. Some ways are gonna be more healthy than others. 
But the actual documents of adding tomb are extremely helpful, salutary, and rich. The Second Vatican Council, in its actual texts, because remember, that's what um, belongs to the church's um, magisterium, to, the, to what we're, to part of our, depo- our faith. Mm-hmm. The texts of the council are not in contradiction to, um, you know, previous solemn church teachings. There's a continuity. There's, a, um, there's an identity, even though there is also a development. And so there's no contradiction um, between the text of the Second Vatican Council and the and previous solemn teachings of our faith. In fact, you know, our, so the council is a valid council. You know, it's um, that a valid council that carries on our faith, that develops our faith, but that doesn't contradict our um, the handing on of the gospel. There's a continuity with the content of the gospel, and so and so this is um, like people always mention something like dignitatis humanae. And, and so on. But, but there's a great book, by the way, by Michael Dunnigan coming out from Emmaus Academic Press that shows the continuity of Dignitatis Humanae. It's completely, completely decisive. This book by Michael Dunnigan is completely amazing. So people get worried about this or that, but um, you know, the Second Vatican Council is a treasured council of our mm-hmm. church. It doesn't mean that it's the answer to everything. In fact, right now we're dealing with problems um, that in some ways arise from the council um, through misinterpretations or through um, partial interpretations, but we're obviously dealing with problems um, again. So the, the Second Vatican Council is not an answer to everything, but it does um, address a number of important issues, and and I feel very grateful for that council. Um, so you know, growing up in the church, I always heard the advice, uh, you know, follow your conscience, and, and I, you know. You even heard that a lot from priests, you know. I mean, it's a very subjective approach to moral to a moral decision making, and uh, it's sort of like equivalent to like saying, you know, you know, just follow your heart. You know, it'll lead you to the right place. Kind of makes the teachings of Jesus uh, and the Bible, or even the Catholic Church, not really relevant. Um, Saint John Paul sought uh, to correct these errors, uh, but it seems that this view has become prominent again. You write about this in your book, Abuse of Conscience. Uh, uh, can you share a little bit about this? Essentially, what happened is that after, in the 1950s, after World War II, um, you got a development of a new kind of conscience center morality in, in Germany. Um, and Karl Rahner was a key figure in developing this new kind of conscience center morality. It was rooted in existentialist ethics. And I'm not going to get into all the boring parts. But the bottom line is that after the council, when the council had called for a more biblical, a more Christocentric, um, a more virtue-centered, fundamentally, um, way of understanding moral theology and and Christian moral life, uh, what ended up happening was instead the um, the 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 Ranarians pulled off this. Uh, new form of conscious-centered morality, and you find that form, they used to call it like proportionalism or whatever, but but those essentially, um, anyway, this way of thinking about morality um, proved, proved to be um, not adequate to the Christian life. And so, so John Paul II responded very strongly to it and, and um, gave us some incredibly rich teachings. Um, Veritatis Splendor is a, is a complete classic and, and something that belongs to the magisterium in a, in a very deep way. But the fact is that the fact is that the professors never never bought into it really, and in many areas, in many areas at least. And you remember, you got to remember that the seminaries for 25 years were taught 
this new kind of conscience center morality in the seminaries. Mm. So this is all over the world. And so, of course, you're going to have problems. You know, um, for 25 years, this was taught. John Paul II finally got things in better shape. But, but anyway, so now you're right. It is kind of coming back again. And so we'll, we'll have to fight it again. You know, and, and uh, you know, we ask Christ, our Lord, for strength in that. But, but yeah, you, you can't have a, um, a, you know, the morality of following Jesus is quite different from following your conscience. Conscience has a place in scripture. You can, if you read St. Paul, you're going to find conscience, but, but you gotta, you gotta remember, you gotta read like the Sermon on the Mount and, and Jesus commandments and, and then read what Paul says in his moral teachings. And you're going to discover that conscience is not the fundamental, it's not the fundamental root. Now there is a good, there's a strong place for conscience, but also conscience has to be properly understood. Anyway, these yeah. these boring, boring things can, can um, I don't want to go on forever, but this is sort of well, that's uh, okay. what no, I'm talking about. No, but, uh, this is interesting. I mean, and, and and the point I want to make is that we have to have a well-formed conscience, right? I mean, that's the topic of our our, our podcast and, and event and show today is forming our consciences. And uh, so can you offer a vision for what the moral life is and the proper place of conscience in it? Now, now remember, I have to admit to you that my book, The Abuse of Conscience, is written to moral theologians. So what I'm trying to do is more fundamental there, you know, as I'm trying to say, not a conscience-centered morality, not a conscience-centered morality. Now, I'm not, I'm not trying to um, instruct them, like, on what the proper way of forming the conscience is, because, um, you know, that's, that's very important. It's just not the book that, not, not my own task in this book. Now, on the other hand, of course, of course, you have to have a proper understanding of um, what the conscience is. And the conscience, here's the key element. You have to realize that your conscience, through something that Thomas Aquinas calls syndesis or synderesis, through that, um, your conscience receives from the eternal law, from God's eternal law for human flourishing, which is just the light of God's wisdom. The, your, your conscience is just simply your knowing um, through um, this synderesis, you're knowing of these fundamental precepts of the moral law, you know, um, such as uh, um, avoid evil and do good, but then many, and then others, including the, including, um, the Decalogue, you know, this type of thing, um, you know, these basic precepts are known in conscience because you the conscience is, is part of the light of reason. And your your natural reason participates in in um, the divine reason. Um, that's what is created as such. Um, you know, the, the finite created light participates in the divine light. I, I'm not I'm not giving all the all the things I would need to say if if um, professors are listening to this. But the bottom line is that's what the formation of consciousness is about. It's coming to realize that you are sharing in um, you know through your mind. You you know you know some fundamental moral precepts and fundamental moral ground. And so um, a well-formed conscience then is going to realize that you need to become attuned to these precepts. You need to deepen and your understanding of their meaning because we can get confused. Like one, one of these precepts is like, um, don't kill the innocent, you know, but on the other hand, if you see grandma suffering, um, you know, and she, you know, she's on a feeding tube or something. You just think, well, maybe we should kill her. Now, I don't think I don't think we should kill her at all, obviously. But I know people get these confusions, 
And so that's what a well-formed conscience does, is remind mm -hmm. us that we just do not kill the innocent, you know, no matter what. You know, yeah. instead, we, instead we care for the innocent. We care for people. We don't kill. Right. And anyway, th these are kind of things. And so um, that's what a well-formed conscience is. You have to have, it's important to have a proper understanding of conscience. Look, the thing is though here that I don't know what are people talking about when they talk about conscience? Like whenever, whenever um, I hear anyone start talking about their conscience or, or even in our conversation, I don't know what people are talking about. You know, remember conscience is a lawgiver. So it's in here, a hearing of an internal law, you know, an, an absolute law such as thou shalt not. That, that, that's conscience, by the way. So unless you're hearing thou, thou must or thou shalt not, you know, then it's not conscience. So, so the truth about conscience is that it's a limited thing. You know, probably people are talking about their prudence. Probably people are talking about their prudential reasoning. I think that I tend to think that when people talk about conscience, they're not talking about conscience at all. You know, conscience again is a lawgiver. It's an imperative. It's like you must do this. You must not do this. You know, you are guilty if you do this. You are guilty if you do not do this. <laughs> do, do you understand? So. When people talk about conscience, when people talk about, and they say, like, in my conscience, in my conscience, I feel that, um, I feel that same-sex marriage is correct. It's like that has nothing to do with it. You know, that you're, that might be your prudential reasoning, mm. but but that's not conscience. Conscience is you must, you know. Well, what, anyway, so it's a kind of a disaster. I mean, to be honest, we're dealing with a disaster, but the disaster comes about through this new conscience-centered um, morality that was developed by Rahner. I could I could go on forever about why this is so, but anyhow, so people have a they have this sort of fake understanding of conscience that that isn't conscience at all. What advice would you give to people like myself who, are like, when we're talking to friends or even members of our family, say, "Look, you know, in my heart, it's okay that I do this," and, and I hear God, you know, in my conscience telling me to. Um, you know, that this is okay and this is what I should be doing in my life. So, you know, without, uh, how do you redirect them? How do you advise them in a way that will resonate to the person that feels that they're in a righteous position? Do you know what I'm trying to say? Because they feel like they're in the right place. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no doubt. <laughs> Look, um, the, the bottom line is that the problem is once people get in their mind that, that you that you should have a conscience-centered moral theology, um, they get into trouble. Um, again, so I don't I don't know that if you if you're arguing with them about conscience, I, I'm not sure that that's going to work. Um, the the main thing here would be um, you know they need I would suggest that that fundamental to the to the answer to your question is going to be faith in Jesus Christ. And a real quest um, for him as king and lawgiver. You know, king and the one who, by lawgiver, I just simply mean the one who truly wants your flourishing. He truly wants you to live um, eternally, but also to live fully now, to live a life like Jesus, but to live fully in a way that is uh, proper, um, you know, to a rational creature, you know, um, to truly love other people to truly love other people like Jesus loved, to obey the new commandment, you know, to love other people as Jesus loved you. 
And so I do feel like that's the answer really is that, um, that faith has to be stirred in the, in the human heart to really um, seek to love other people, to obey that new commandment, you know, because mm-hmm. Jesus is the king, he's the, he's the lawgiver, and his law is love. Yeah, amen. And so amen. It, do, it doesn't mean, of course, that love is, that therefore we're going to have an easy answer, but the, but I do feel like that's the basis. And then once you understand that, you do understand that Jesus Christ is the word of God mm. and that um, our mind, our minds are, are a sharing in that word. And so, and so um, there's certain principles we can know in conscience, but, but remember Jesus, um, when he reveals the moral law to us, he teaches us, you know, he gives us um, moral instructions and um, all sorts of things. But yeah, he also yeah. gives it to us through our, through our church. Yeah, yeah. You know, he gives it to us through our church. But but the fundamental thing, man, is that um, you know a deepening of faith in Jesus Christ. That's that's going to be the key. And then the new commandment. Sure. But then also other other things that St. Paul says and, and the Holy Scripture who, that um, are inspired by God for for teaching and instruction. Yeah. And then then learning from there, going from there. You know, but so what I think, what I honestly think about this is that um, we're dealing with a crisis of faith. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a crisis of faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and and as as teacher also as the one who is the um, God's true prophet. He's God's true priest. He's God's true king. You know, but he's also God's God's true prophet. So he's our he's the teacher of wisdom, really. Yeah. And so, anyways, I, I feel like right now. Um, that our church is going through a very profound crisis of faith. We have to be part of witnessing to Jesus Christ and his love and his mercy and his um, patience, you know, but also his truth, obviously, Mm. you know, so anyhow, we have to be part of that. I'm glad that you're part of it and you're doing such a great job. So I want to be part of it. I want to join up. Amen. (laughs) Let's join each other. We're, uh, we'll, we'll, we, we're strong in unity, right? So, um, amen. Yeah. Okay. I'm joining, I'm joining up. Absolutely. (laughs) That's great. Well, listen, uh, Dr. Matt, uh, thank you so much for hanging with us today. And it's been so great sharing the faith with you. You're very encouraging to me and our team here. Our guys here in the sound booth are like jumping around, jumping for joy, thumbs up, but they're having a good time. (laughs) So, uh, thanks for joining us. God bless you. Uh, thank you. Thanks for having me. That was a really cool and informative episode, and I'm so glad that you joined us today. I want to remind you to please share this podcast with others. Let everybody know. We need as many people as possible to get to know God better. If you've been blessed by our work, please consider going to our donation page on our website at arrayofhope.org. Also, join us on social media. It keeps us connected to our faith through our music, videos, and daily reflections. There's lots of great stuff to share with you all. We pray the Divine Mercy Chaplet daily on Instagram at 3 p.m. So join us where we can pray together as a universal church. Our guest next time will be Dr. Ray Garendi. He's a Catholic psychologist and a family therapist, and we're going to talk about how to raise a Catholic family in today's culture. So thanks for joining us today. And there's always a reason for hope. This is Mario Costabile. Until next time, peace. Peace.